a study on the book of Genesis. So if you want to start studying Genesis, reading through it, have at it. It's going to be a fun study, and that's going to take us uh, really from the fall all the way into the spring, because it's uh, 50 chapters long. It's a, it's a big book, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm already studying it, and it's going to be a fun study. Well, let me pray for us, and we're going to go into uh, chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and uh, starting at verse 12. Well, Father, we come to you this uh, morning, and we thank you for the rain. We thank you for spring. What a reminder it is of your grace and your mercy. And Father, we uh, pray that this morning as we study your word, that you would speak to us and that you would uh, show us what you would have us to see. And Lord, may we uh, be encouraged by what we hear, and and may it affect the way we live our lives uh, in the days ahead. And all that's going on around us, Father, may those things not derail us, distract us, defeat us, but Father, may we have hope in you, knowing that you have a plan and you're working it to perfection. And we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, this week we're looking at uh, chapter 4 of 1 Peter, and we're going to be in verses 12 through the end of the chapter, and uh, he's really wrapping this whole thing up. So for four chapters, he's been encouraging people and trying to get these people living in Northern Asia Minor to understand what it is they're going through, why they're going through it. Uh, They're questioning the whole idea of trials. Why are we going through trials? Why are we having struggles? We thought when we came to faith in Christ, things were going to get better, but they actually seem to be getting worse. What's up with that? And he's trying to get them to understand what it is they're going through and, and why they should have hope even in the midst of their struggles. And so these verses are, are really pretty interesting. Um, there's at least a couple of verses in there you're familiar with, and, and I think people have struggled over the years how to interpret them and what do they mean and what do we do with these things. But it's all about suffering yet again, and yet it's about why we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. None of us like suffering, right? We, we don't wake up in the morning and, and long to suffer. These people didn't either. But he's trying to get them to understand, don't be surprised when you suffer. It's, it's, it should be expected. And so in verse 12, he says, beloved. And that's just a, uh, an expression, a New Testament expression of love for these people. He's, they're like his family. They're like his children. And so he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised when these things happen. They're going to happen. They are happening. So don't be surprised by it. So what's he mean? Why shouldn't they be surprised? You come to faith in Christ, you're kind of sold a bill of goods that your life's going to get better, Um, you're going to have joy and happiness and contentment, and then suddenly you find yourself persecuted, you've lost your job, Um, people are ostracizing you, so why wouldn't you be surprised? Well, it's interesting, this word surprised is the same one he used in verse 4. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. He said, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, who's they? Well, it's those who are persecuting you, those unbelievers with whom you live who are persecuting you, who are um, pushing against you, verbally attacking you. They're surprised when you don't come back and do what you used to do with them. In other words, you don't come back and live the life you used to live like they lived, which he describes as a flood of debauchery. It's the same word. They're they're shocked at that. They're surprised at that. And it's this 
interesting Greek word that it's not just surprise in the sense of, oh my gosh, I didn't know. No, it's, it's, it's much deeper than that, much stronger than that. It's, they, they think it's weird that you don't keep doing the things that you used to do. In other words, these people used to live like sinners. They used to do all the things that the people living in their community were doing and sinning, but they don't anymore, and they think that's so weird, and they're shocked by it, and so much so that they're put off by it. It irritates them that you don't do what you used to do. You know, back in, uh, gosh, 1975, I believe it was, um, I was living in Waco and uh, no longer attending Baylor. I'd flunked out of Baylor because I had a pretty significant drug problem and couldn't wake up to go to class. And even if I went to class, I didn't pay any attention. And half the time I didn't go to class because I was high. And, and so I flunked every exam I ever took because I never studied. And so I got basically, I flunked out of school. And I was living in Waco, and every morning I'd start my day the same way. I would get up, I'd get high. I had a job, I'd go to that job. At lunch, I'd go and I'd get high, and then I'd go back to my job, and that was my life. And then at night, I'd go out with my buddies, and we'd get drunk. And then I'd go back to my apartment, and I'd get high, and that was my day. It was the way I lived my life. But God redeemed me from that. God delivered me from that, and really, within 24 hours, I gave it all up. I just walked away from it. But I also walked away from Waco because I knew if I stayed, my friends would badger me and pressure me to come back and keep doing what it is I was doing with them before. And that's the picture here. They were shocked when I just, I literally overnight packed my car, left, and vacated Waco. And they would call me, where are you? What, what, where have you gone? And they couldn't believe that I had just walked away from all of that because to them it was fun. And I was their source for all the pot they wanted because I was selling pot. And, and they were shocked. They were surprised. And then they got angry that I wouldn't come back and continue the lifestyle that I had lived before. That's exactly the picture here. So these lost people who used to enjoy your company in their sin are shocked, they're put off, they're angry. And he uses the same word here when he says, hey, beloved, fellow believer, don't be shocked, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be put off by these things that are happening to you. Don't let them irritate you. He calls them strange, and it's a similar Greek word. It comes from the same root as xenos, and it's, it, it, don't think it's weird, alien, foreign, not to be expected. And don't look at it as unwanted and to be avoided at all costs. But that's the problem is that's how you and I view trials, right? I want to avoid trials at all costs. Now, let's, let's get it clear that there's two kinds of trials going on in this passage. There are the trials and the troubles and the tribulations we bring on ourselves either through our sin or our stupidity. And I have a long list. You know, I'm, I'm great at bringing trials upon myself because I make really bad decisions at times. That's not what he's talking about. When he talks about these fiery trials, he's talking about trials associated with your faith in Christ. There's a huge difference. 
And we, we have both in our lives. There are things that we suffer because we make poor decisions, because we do things we shouldn't do. But then there are those occasions, and sadly for most of us, they're rarer when I live for Christ and I suffer for it. When I walk the, the faith walk that I'm called to and I suffer for it. That's what he's talking about. Those trials that we go through because we're living according to the call of Christ. We're living according to the model of Christ. And as a result, we're suffering for it. And most of what these people are suffering is because of that. Because they're Christians. Not because they're stupid. Not because they're obnoxious. Not because they say the wrong thing. It's because they talk about their faith because they profess faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore they are persecuted for it. Now we know that Peter's already talked about this all the way back in chapter 1. Remember what he said, he says, Be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Remember, we, we've said multiple times, this is an eschatological letter. It's pointing toward the future. These people are living in the here and now, and that's part of their problem, just like you and I. We live here and now, but Peter wants them to know there is a hereafter. There is a future. This is the present. It's not always fun. It's not always pleasant, but don't forget there is a future. There's something else to come. So these trials should produce in you a joy because there's an outcome. There's a very positive outcome. He goes on and says, it's being tested. What is being tested? Your faith, your faith in Christ, your, your faith and hope in all the promises that come with Christ. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So he's telling them that if, if you maintain your strength and your steadfastness in the midst of this, you, you know that you've got hope. You've got something out there waiting for you. And it's just a case of just letting God finish what God began. This is not saying that, guys, that my future, my hope is based on my ability to stay faithful. What I love about salvation is that it's the work of God and it's guaranteed by Jesus Christ. It's not me staying faithful that guarantees me a place in heaven. Otherwise, I'd be in really bad trouble because I fall out of faith all the time just like you do. That's not what this is teaching. It's just saying when you maintain through all of this, and his inference is, and you will, you'll survive this. There's something great waiting for you, something wondrous, some, something incredible. So what he's saying is that you have enduring faith. Faith that survives these temporary trials is a faith that's genuine. It will last. There's going to be times, guys, when you fail, right? There's going to be times when you don't follow through, when you lose hope and you doubt. And that's normal and that's natural. But over the long haul, your faith remains. You don't give up. You don't turn your back on him. You don't walk away from the faith. I'm a firm believer that if anybody walks away from the faith, they never had faith to begin with. 
Because it's Jesus Christ who holds us in his hands, not the other way around. I don't cling on to Jesus with dear life. It's no, he clings on to me. That's why he told the Father in his high priestly prayer, I have not lost a one you have given me. See, it's guaranteed by him, not me. It doesn't absolve me of the fact that I need to live by faith, but it's not my faith that saves me. It's his work that saves me. So it's, it's genuine. It's lasting. So we are going to suffer trials for our faith. Maybe not so much right here and now, but I think as time increases and as, as this world progressively gets stranger and weirder and more ungodly, we will suffer for our faith, just like many people are in other countries all around the world. What's going on in China may one day reach our shores where we will be persecuted vehemently for our faith. So we are going to suffer trials here, but one of the things that jumps out in these verses to me is, is Peter's talking about two groups of people, and he has been for really all chapter 4. He's talking about the lost, those who are persecuting them, and the saved, the ones being persecuted. And he's going to continue to talk about those two groups in the, the remaining verses of chapter 4. One group, the group to whom he's writing, are going to have trials, but their trials will one day come to an end. The other group who are producing those trials also go through trials, their trials will never come to an end. They'll actually get worse. There are judgments to come, and that's going to come up as we go through this. The loss, the unbelieving that sometimes attack us and sometimes push against us are going to face trials for eternity. How long is eternity? I have no idea. <laughs> it's a long time. It's longer than how you wait at the DMV trying to get your license renewed. It's forever. They're going to suffer forever trials, whereas our trials come to an end. And that's the picture he's painting in these verses. Is that I, we have a faith that we'll survive these trials because we have help and we have hope. They don't. They won't make it through. So I, I've put in your notes this little chart I threw together. That, that helps me understand what Peter's trying to tell these people. And it's more complicated looking than it really is. You and I are the guy in the middle. We, we are going through fiery trials, whether you recognize it or not, whether you see it or not. But because of your faith, you do suffer trials. One of the greatest um, signs of these fiery trials is that Every day, because you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the enemy attacks you. It, it may not be physically, it may not be visibly, but you get attacked every day. Here's how it happens. You wake up every morning, and you know, I need to get in the Word. And suddenly, man, I got I to gotta get, get to work early, or I, I need to do this, or I need to do that. I don't have time to do that. And you don't. That's a direct attack from the enemy because he's distracting you from the very thing you need for your life. You turn on the TV and you begin watching a, a show you know you shouldn't watch and the enemy's there and he's tempting you and prompting you to walk away, to turn your back on the Holy Spirit and to do the things that you know you're not supposed to do. We are all under attack and that's why Peter has gone out of his way to tell these people that you've got to have the mind of Christ. You've got to focus on 
What did Jesus focus on? To do the will of his Father. Always keep that in your mind. You exist on this earth to fulfill the will of God, and that will produce obedience, humility, selflessness, and love. Secondarily, you got to keep your eyes focused on the kingdom. We're in the kingdom in the sense that we're citizens of the kingdom, but the kingdom has not fully come yet. That comes at the end. It's in the future. It's how the story ends. And if you keep your eyes focused on the kingdom, this is not the kingdom. This is not heaven. This is not the, the eternal state. If you focus on the true kingdom, you will have hope. You'll have assurance, you'll have peace, you'll have joy, even now. So those two things always have to be in our mind. Otherwise, when the trials come, what do you do? You take your eyes off of those two things and you focus on the trial. And when you do, it produces fear, anxiety, hopelessness, and doubt. This is what was happening to these people living in Asia Minor. They were looking at their trials and they were losing hope in everything that they had been told about Jesus salvation, the future. But if we view our trials through the lens of all that's been promised, we'll produce purity, confidence, dependence, and faith. See, that's why it's so important for us to understand that these trials that we go through have a purpose, and they produce certain things. There's benefits that we accrue. They provoke courage. See, when you go through a trial and you survive the trial, you're not nearly as afraid the next time. You, you learn to trust him. They prove that you are truly godly, that I didn't give in, that I did survive this test. I truly am a child of God. They, they give proof, evidence. They promote confidence. Once again, you go through a trial, he sees you through that trial, and then the next time you're more confident when that trial shows up. They produce rewards, joys, blessings, here and now, but ultimately future rewards that we'll see when we see him. They produce joy. This one's always kind of weird to me that going through trials might produce joy, but I know that in my life when I finally make it through a trial and I survive that trial by the grace of God, there's a joy that's produced in that because he's helped me, he's assisted me, he's there with me and for me. So once again, they're going through trials. He knows it. He realizes it. He knows the source of the trials, and he knows the purpose behind the trials. He's trying to get them to understand that. That's why he says in verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So three times he's talked about joy and gladness. That is the antithesis of what most of us feel when going through trials, right? Trials of any kind be they fiery trials from the hand of God or fiery trials that we produced. We rarely rejoice, but he says we should rejoice. We should have joy. We should see the good in this because we have a good God. And James says the same thing. You're very familiar with this passage. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Really? James, are you nuts? Have you lost your mind? No, he hasn't, because he knows from experience that this is true. He says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, and when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Now, is that going to happen in this lifetime? 
Is there anybody in this room that's ever going to reach perfection, needing nothing? No. Now, we'll move further and further along the continuum, but this is really a promise of future blessing, that there is a day coming when we will finish this trial, this test, our faith will be perfected, and everything will be done, and we will be with Him. That's why we can be joyful, we can be glad. And here's the caveat, here's the key, when His glory is revealed. We should have joy in this life because He's with us. But our real joy will come when he is revealed. See, that's why we got to focus on the kingdom. There is an end to the story. There is a culmination to this whole thing. And if we don't think about that, this becomes all there is. And if this is all there is, guys, I don't know if this is worth it. And it's not without a future. It's not without the fact that his glory one day will be revealed. Again, look, look at what he said in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Christ when he comes again. That's when the real joy will, become, will come because then we will know it's all, it's all been true. He's come back, and we'll see him. It will no longer be a promise. It will be a reality. And that's going to produce incredible joy in the life of every believer. The Apostle John says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Right here, right now, I am a child of God. You are a child of God. That is your title. That's your uh, reality. You're an heir of the kingdom of God. He says, that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That just means they don't know us as children of God, right? When you go to the office, does everybody turn and go, look, a child of God? No, they may say a lot of things, but that's probably not what they say. Do your neighbors see you as a child of God? No, but God does. That's why he says, beloved, we are now children of God right here, right now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. In other words, we don't know what the future is going to look like for us. We have some inferences from the Scriptures, but we don't know because we've not yet experienced it. But he goes on and says, we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. See, that's the promise. That's why we should have joy now. That's why we should have hope now. That's why we should face fiery trials without fear and intimidation, with courage, because we know how the story ends. He will one day appear. So Peter's saying, focus on the return of Christ. It's interesting that none of these people had ever met Christ, never seen Christ, because this, they all came to faith after Christ died, buried, and was resurrected and ascended. So they've never met the man. Guess what? Neither of you. I've never met Jesus. I've met him spiritually in the sense that I've heard about him, placed my faith in him, but I have yet to meet Jesus, see Jesus, but one day I will, and I've got to keep that in mind that one day he is coming back. It's a reality. It's not a myth. It's not just hopeful thinking. It's something that will true, be true, and it's inevitable. It can't be stopped. It can't be negated. And it's then that we will be fully glorified. And all that means, guys, and I don't mean this 
to sound simplistic, but I will be done with this sanctification thing, this thing of fiery trials and testing and proving my faith. It will all be done. My struggle with sin will be over. I will be glorified. I'll have a new body. I'll have a new nature that is complete and whole and sinless. That's what we have to look forward to. And every time you fall into sin, every time you fail, you can remember the fact that this will not always be because of Christ appearing. We will be completely sanctified, completely holy, and we will no longer have to be purified. You see, what he's telling you and I is that the trials purify my faith because my faith is oftentimes infiltrated with sin, self, and it has to be purified. That's why he uses the analogy of purifying gold. Gold is not naturally pure. It has to be purified. All of the dross needs to be burned out of it so that you have pure gold left over. That's what he's doing right here, right now in this life. But the day's coming when that will no longer be needed. No more testing required because my faith will be complete and I will be with him and the Father will be with me and you. That's why he says to focus on that. So he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, if you speak for Christ, live for Christ, and you're verbally assaulted, insulted for it, and you will be, you're blessed. Now again, that, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't sound right. What do you mean I'm blessed if I'm insulted? Anybody ever felt blessed when they're insulted? I never have. I usually lash out and give them the same thing back. You know, I have the gift of uh, sarcasm, and, and I'm, I'm very good at it. And if you want to insult me, I know who's going to win that battle. It ain't going to be you. Well, that's not what he's talking about here. He, he's saying you're blessed by God. When you suffer for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. See, what we've got to understand is that when we think of blessings, we think of tangible things. You know, uh, an unexpected bonus, a check in the mail, um, a promotion. You know, we, we think of tangible things that we have placed value upon. And so, therefore, if we get those things, we must be blessed. That's why the disciples, and, and really all of the Jews living in the first century when Jesus walked the planet, we're always confused when he would say things about, and we're, we're going to look at this verse in just a minute, that wealthy people are going to have a really hard time getting into the kingdom. And they would go, what? But they're blessed. Look at all the stuff they've got. God has blessed them. And that's the way we think about blessings. And Jesus is going to say, no, that's <laughs> nothing can be farther from the truth. Just because you have a lot of stuff doesn't mean you're blessed by God. He's talking about a different kind of blessing, and it's a blessing that has to do with something we have no control over. And it's the Holy Spirit. He says, the spirit of, the, of glory and of God rests upon you. That's the blessing. You know how you survive trials, fiery trials? The spirit. You take the spirit away and you will fail every time. But because you have the Holy Spirit, you're blessed. And that blessing results in what? perseverance, faith, hope, and joy, even in the midst of trials. 
In his second letter, Peter says this, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. This is the New Living Translation. What's he given us? The Holy Spirit. He hasn't given you a nice car and a big house and uh, a 401k that's doing really, really well. He hasn't given you stuff. He's given you the Holy Spirit. Because guess what? The stuff doesn't help you survive fiery trials. A nice home is nice, but it's not going to help you survive the attacks of the enemy. As a matter of fact, he may attack you through those very things. But see, we have the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit is there to let us know you belong to me, says God. Look what Paul writes. He, God, has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. What's this mean? By placing the Spirit within you, he's basically told you, in spite of the fact that you still have a sin nature and you're far from glorified and far from fully sanctified, I'm putting my Spirit within you and he is your guarantee that everything I promise is going to happen. You can't lose him. He's not going to ever leave you. You can quench him. You can grieve him. But he's a permanent resident in you, and it's my guarantee, says God, that everything I promise will happen, will take place, and it should produce in us joy and peace and confidence. Everything he has promised will happen. How do we know? Because I have the Spirit living in me. You have the Spirit living within you, which takes us back to this little chart. Fiery trials, if you don't live in the power of the Spirit, will produce nothing but fear, anxiety, hopelessness, and doubt. That's why when we grieve the Holy Spirit, it's so important. He doesn't leave, but he leaves us to our own devices. He basically says, all right, if you're not going to listen to me, you have fun. I'll still be here. I'm ready to help you, but if you want to live in your own strength, according to your own will, have at it. And this is what happens. The trials come, we get tested, and we end up angry, anxious, hopeless, and filled with doubt, even though we're Christians. And yet, if we listen to the Holy Spirit, what happens? He produces in us purity. He purifies us through those trials. He cleanses us. He makes us more Christ-like. And out of that, we get confidence. And that confidence creates greater dependence on Him because you realize, man, I can't do this without Him. I can't survive this life without the Holy Spirit and it increases my faith in God. Anytime you survive a fiery trial, you you have to recognize that you didn't do it. He did it through you. He did it for you. So I can have fiery trials now, or I can have them later. That's why he's talking to two different groups. Now, he's not telling Christians that you're going to lose your faith. He's just saying, you ought to be grateful that you get your fiery trials in this life. Because all those people attacking you, they're going to get theirs later. And it's going to be far worse than anything you've ever experienced. We get a fire of refinement, right? It purifies. It sanctifies. What do they get? They're going to get a fire of judgment. It's interesting when you, when you read through um, the Psalms, there's often uh, statements about why do the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to do really well. And I don't know about you, 
But I see that every day, and it frustrates the bejeebers out of me. I see obviously wicked people, godless people, who seem to be doing extremely well. And then I see righteous people suffer. And you go, why? And God says, just wait. Just be patient. It will not always be so. And that's what Peter's talking about. The lost are going to experience judgment. Our trials are temporary. Theirs are not. Their trials will be permanent. They may not be experiencing trials right here, right now, but they will. They will go through these trials. Ours purify, theirs will condemn. For how long? Eternity. And it results in what? Condemnation. Condemnation that will last eternity, and it will be eternal separation from God. That's the, I believe in hell. I believe there's a real legitimate hell. Can't explain it, don't want to experience it. Thank God I won't. But I believe it's real. But the real essence of hell is not the pain and the suffering. It's eternal separation from God and no hope of ever being saved. That's what hell is really all about. See, in John, Jesus says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We're real familiar with this verse, right? We just pull it out of its context. And we never look at the surrounding verses. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's a fascinating statement, right? That Jesus Christ didn't come to earth as a conquering king who's put out with his unruly citizens. He didn't come to condemn them. He came to save them. And that's important for us to understand. But he came in order that the world might be saved. Now, he was king, and he could have condemned, and he could have lit up the Pharisees and the Sadducees, He could have taken out Rome. He could have done everything he's going to do in the second coming the first time. But if he had, no one would have ever been saved. He would have been right, just, and holy in doing so. But God had a plan. And the plan was, his first coming was to what? Save. And he didn't come to condemn. And here's what's really fascinating. He goes on and says, whoever believes in him, himself, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Now think about what that says. When Jesus Christ came to earth, everybody was already condemned. Their fate was sealed. They were going to spend eternity in hell. But Jesus Christ came so that some may not have to go through that, to save some. See, he didn't condemn them. They were already condemned. They were already headed to a place they don't want to go to, and they may not believe in, but that doesn't make it go away. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. But those who rejected him were already condemned. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, all those people that are persecuting these people in Asia Minor are unbelievers, pagans, worshiping false gods, maybe atheists, agnostics, but they don't believe in the one true God and the Son of God that he sent, and therefore they're condemned. And because they're condemned, their future is sealed. It's already set. 
He goes on and says, this is the judgment. Listen to this really carefully. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, speaking of himself. He is the light of the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. They hate Christ. Why do they hate you? Why do they persecute you? Why do they insult you? Because they can't stand Christ. Because his very presence, they feel like, condemns them, but they're already condemned. They've condemned themselves. And so he comes to save, but they love the darkness rather than the light, and they do wicked. All throughout this letter, he has is, he is said over and over again, do good, do good, do good, do good. Do what is righteous. Do the will of God. Don't do wickedness like they do, like you used to do. He says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We come to the light because we're attracted to the light like moss to a flame. We want to be with him. So he's, he's, Jesus in this statement is juxtaposing what? Wickedness and righteousness. Doing evil versus doing good. The already condemned are going to keep doing things that will further condemn them. Their condemnation, condemnation will continue, but we get what? Commendation. You're my son. You're my child. I'm pleased with you. I rejoice in you. And they're going to one day get retribution while we get reward. See, that's what we have to keep our eyes on is that, yeah, things look wacky and it seems like our side is losing, but our side does not lose. Our side wins in the end and we should know that and put our faith and hope in it. So as he begins to wrap up this chapter, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Sounds like an odd statement, right? But he's, he's just saying, guys, don't suffer for the wrong thing. Don't be doing things that you used to do. Suffer for the right reason. Suffer for doing good, not doing wickedness. Don't go back to doing those things. Everyone suffers, right? Everyone suffers in this world, ultimately. But we suffer for what? Righteousness. We suffer because we're no longer condemned. They suffer because they are condemned. They live in an evil world. They live in a sin-filled world. And they suffer because of it. And one day they will suffer for eternity. Ours comes with no shame. If you murder and you're, you suffer for it, there's a shame associated with it. When we suffer for the name of Christ, there is no shame because we're doing what is right. We're doing what is righteous. We're doing the will of the Father. And then he makes an interesting statement in verse 17. He says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. I think I've probably abused this verse for 66 years. And I've always t taken it to mean that, guys, if we don't get our spiritual act together, God's going to judge us. Church, if you don't start doing what you're called to do, we're going to get judged by God. That is not what this verse means. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And thankfully, it doesn't. See, what he's telling us is something so much more profound that this judgment, the judgment is already taking place. In other words, if, when Jesus Christ came, if people are already condemned, that means they've already been judged. Their fate is sealed unless they believe. If they choose not to believe, their, their fate is going to be what it's going to be. They are going to spend eternity separated from God. He's saying that when Jesus Christ came, 
it revealed the separation of the two groups of people, those who are attracted to the light and those who are repulsed by the light, those who hate the light and those who love the light. And it shows that there's no longer one group of people just condemned. There's now the commended. There's now the faithful. There's now the righteous. So judgment is, is revealed through the church. In other words, that we exist shows that there are going to be two groups of people in the end. One that will be condemned forever and one that will end up spending eternity with the Father. We are the revealer of the fact that there is a judgment. See, Jesus said, this is the judgment. We just read it. What's the judgment? The light has come, but some preferred the darkness over the light. Their works are evil, continue to be evil. They love the darkness and they hate the light. That's the pattern of their lives. And they stand condemned. That is the greatest portion of the people who live in this planet right now. But then there's us. We reveal that there's another way. And the church reveals that there's another path besides just eternal judgment and condemnation. There is salvation. There's glorification. There's hope. There's an eternity with God the Father and God the Son, but the rest stand condemned. Paul says, reminding you and I, we used to be that way. Some of you were once like that, condemned. But you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were changed, you were sanctified, set apart. And so we should live like that, we should rejoice in that. And then he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What an interesting statement. And he's really quoting from the Old Testament, and he's paraphrasing it. He's, he's kind of changed it up slightly in order to make a point. And what he's trying to say is, guys, if you're in Christ, count yourself blessed. Count yourself fortunate because you didn't deserve it. See, he's, he's not teaching these two things. Sometimes we, again, misconstrue Peter's words. He's not saying salvation is virtually impossible. Man, the, the righteous are scarcely saved. We're getting through by the skin of our teeth. No, that's not what he's saying. He is also not saying even righteous people barely make it in the end. In other words, you're going to get right up to the end. You'll be in your deathbed and you're just going to barely make it in. Your righteousness will just be enough to get you into heaven. Man, if, if it's based on my righteousness, my righteousness, I probably won't be in heaven. But it's not based on my righteousness. It's based on whose? Christ. So what's he saying here? Once again, he's trying to encourage these people, encourage you and I, that there's hope. Paul Actemeyer says, the point is not so much the scarcity of salvation or doubt about it as it is the difficulty presented to God to save even a righteous person. Now, I, I don't like how he describes it as difficult for God. Nothing's difficult for God. But what he's saying is that, is that God can't save a righteous person. Why? Because there are none. He can only save unrighteous people. There's nobody in this planet who's righteous, right? We know that from the Scriptures. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one's seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. You think he's emphatic? Is there anybody righteous? No. Is there any righteous person that God can save? No. Never has been, never will be. They're rare. 
No, they're not just rare. They're like unicorns. They don't exist. They're a figment of our imagination that anybody thinks they're righteous, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It was all a facade. They, they weren't really righteous. Listen to what Mark 2 says. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. This is Jesus addressing his disciples, and he's trying to get them to understand a reality. He's just addressed a rich young ruler who's come to him, and basically he sent him away sad because he said, sell everything you have, and you will be saved. And the guy just walks away. And he goes, man, how hard it is, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Why were they astonished? Why were they shocked? Why were they surprised? Because they thought if you had money, you were already saved. You were blessed by God. And he goes, no, they're not righteous. They're not holy. They don't live up to God's standards. So he looks at them and he says, with a man, it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. See, it's not difficult for God. It's just that God can only save sinners. And we have to get to the point where we're willing to admit that we are one. And then he steps in and he redeems us through our faith in Christ. So what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? There's no hope unless they believe. They will be, if they choose to be serial unbelievers, loving the darkness rather than the light, they will remain as they already are, condemned, judged, with a fate already sealed. See, it's their unbelief, not their sins, that condemn them. It's not that they do worse sins than you do. It's the fact they've committed the unpardonable sin, rejecting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So he wraps it up. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He goes back to this. Keep doing good. Keep doing what is righteous because our suffering when we do good has a purpose. Our trials are productive and they result in not punishment, but in blessing and a future hope. And when God disciplines us through these trials, it's always out of love not hate, not anger, and our present difficulties are temporary. It's not going to last forever, and there's something great in the end, and that future, that that's hope that we have is secure because Jesus Christ is going to come back. That's why Paul tells the Romans, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him, I consider that our present sufferings, our trials, our testings in this life are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's our hope. That's our future. So here's your questions. Why is it so vital that we recognize just how improbable and possible our salvation really is or was? See, you, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. And what keeps us from thinking about that? Why do we get a little cocky and prideful that somehow we were more deserving of salvation than the guy next to us? And how dangerous that really is. Secondly, look at the diagram we just went over. Which traits do the fiery trials in your life tend to produce and why? Which side of the fiery trials are you on? Hope or despair? Anger or joy? And why? 
Why would that be the case? And how does Peter say to change it? Finally, what are some practical ways we can entrust our souls to God as we wait for Christ's return? What does that look like? How do we give our souls that are in his hands to him on a daily basis as we wait for his son's return? Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter penning these words so many years ago through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words and apply them to our hearts so they would get from our head into our heart so they may change our behavior. Lord, may we be people who find joy in the midst of trials. May we know that these trials are temporary and that we have an incredible future in store for us. And Lord, may we understand that all those around us who attack us, who don't understand us, who are irritated by us, need to know what we know. Otherwise, their fate remains that they are condemned and will be judged for eternity. And their trials will be far worse than anything we've experienced. Lord, don't let us wish ill will on them, but put in our hearts a desire that they too might know what we know, know who we know, Jesus Christ. And I pray all this in his name. Amen.